Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Long Short. This week I've had the pleasure of joining my colleagues in Singapore for our annual Alternatives Industry Fund Forum. The forum continues to grow in popularity with over 300 attendees, including fund managers, investors and policymakers joining us at the beautiful setting of the Marina Bay Sands. Topics discussed include the growing interest being seen in private credit by institutional and retail investors, where the smart money has been allocated amid the current frenetic macro and geopolitical environment that we are experiencing, what the next phase of responsible investment looks like, true to how AI is set to disrupt civilization and the opportunities for alternative investments. Later in the show, we'll hear the thoughts from my colleague Michael Bugle, but firstly, I'm delighted to be joined by a leading Singaporean fund manager, Ying Renong. Ying, it's great to speak with you today and welcome to The Long Short. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you having me on. So, Ying, you are the Chief Operating Officer of Heritage Capital Management and your firm's evolution is quite an interesting one. Um, Could you take our listeners through the thought process that saw you transition from a family office through to the setup that you have now? Sure. Um, Heritage Capital Management um, was originally incorporated in 1997 um, as a family office to manage, you know, the capital of our seeding partner. Back in 1997, I mean, I think they're one of the veterans' family office when, you know, family offices was not even a thing in Singapore now. Um, Over the years, they've done a number of different strategies. And then in 2015, they decided to start to look into and start a global quantitative strategy. Um, they then look around and you know, uh, interviewed a few quantitative PMs and professors before deciding to work with Professor Jeff Hu Jianfeng, who at that point in time was the S- was was a SMU professor. He was a professor of finance there. Um, he was brought on to help them create a global quantitative strategy. Five years on, the AUM triple the fund has done really well. Um, the firm then decided to close down the vehicle that was currently operating in, uh, relaunch, and then rebranded the strategy as Heritage Capital Management White Tiger Strategy in October 2021. Goal then was really to institutionalize the setup of the fund um, as a professional hedge fund and a professional fund management company. For all intents and purposes now, we are no longer, we should not consider ourselves a family office because we only manage assets from the, uh, from the White Tiger strategy. Um, the top process then was, I think, for Jeff, his option was, you know, to maybe join another platform or start his new fund. But I think he wanted to continue working with our seeding partner um, to launch a professional fund management businesses. Um, and that's why we've institutionalized our setup. In the past, it was a team of maybe five, six people looking at the fund operations. Right now, in the past one and a half year, we've grown to a team of 15 people with eight in investment, seven in you know, investment operations. Um, even though our processes are fully automated, um, we now have traders around the clock monitoring trading and investments. Um, so that's really where we are. And, you know, I see this as a trend among other family officers as well. I think there's a growth in terms of family officers in, in the region. And many, if they have gained successes in managing their investment operations, they then 
are open to also taking in more external money um, and institutionalizing their setup, um, getting MAS license. I think we are probably the leader in terms of that at, at the forefront of, of this trend. Thank you. I, I, was, I was going to mention, and you've referenced it, Ying, um, the development like the VCC structure and, and how important that is to your ongoing development and being based in Singapore, your decision to, to stay in Singapore, I guess. Um, could you maybe explain a little bit about the VCC fund structure, you know, why you've opted for that and you know, how, how that compares, say, with the Cayman fund structure? Because you've gone down that route, right? Sure. Um, maybe to take a step back, the VCC fund structure is a variable capital company structure that was launched in 2020 by the MAS, the regulator in Singapore. Fast forward, it's been you know, slightly more than two-ish to three years. There's now 800 VCCs in Singapore, so it's been increasingly popular. One of the reasons why it's very popular is because when it was first set up, MAS tried to encourage industry participants to set up VCCs instead of offshore structures by subsidizing the setup operations. So MAS gave grants of 150,000 um, to offset any you know, fund setup costs. This is considerable, 150,000 um, know, per VCC vehicle. So as a result, I think you see many fund managers uh, who are launching new funds decided to offset any fund setup costs in terms of legal, tax, compliance by opening a VCC um, inside an offshore structure. So that kind of kickstart everything. Um, MAS continues to give grants even after two and a half years, um, but they have kept it to 30,000 and, and, and these grants will continue until 2025. But even without the grants, I think the VCC structures have a lot of merits. Um, number one, as a Singapore domicile entity, it enjoys a lot of um, tax benefits. Singapore has numerous, you know, and beneficial tax treaties with neighboring Asian countries um, like Australia, Malaysia, um, you know, Philippines, as well as India. Particularly in India for hedge fund strategies um, and hedge fund strategies that focus on ASEAN markets. If you were to trade derivatives in India, the capital gains tax is about 32-33%. But if you were to trade it via a VCC vehicle and you know a, a Singapore domicile entity, you can enjoy the double tax treaty between Singapore and India. And that capital gains tax of 32% is being waived. So that's hugely beneficial to you know any hedge funds running in their strategies, for example. And as you say, it's not insignificant um, that uh, that number. I mean, eight hundred uh, funds being registered um, in that VCC structure. That is, of course, across traditional and alternative investments, right? Yeah. So my fund, when we first uh, you know launched our fund vehicle in October twenty twenty one. We also launched it as a VCC vehicle and it has proven you know, very popular with our ultra high net worth and family office investors. Uh, most of them are from the Asian regions and I think Singapore 
being known for its political stability and you know uh, its reputation as a financial as a, a as a strong financial hub in the region gives a lot of ultra high net worth investors in the region comfort so they are comfortable investing in in a vcc structure plus i think in addition um you know the vcc structure and has added benefit of the fact that there's economic substance. We are based in Singapore. <laughs> uh, we are regulated. The structure is regulated by MAS, by ACRA. So, um, you know, I think that gives a lot of investors comfort, basically. Right. Thank you. Um, so, obviously, being at the, the event yesterday, uh, we talked about the key trends impacting across the, the alternative investment industry. What do you see from your perch and speaking to your peers across the industry, what do you see as being the key topics at the moment in Singapore, I guess, and APAC more broadly? Some of the key trends, I think, impacting most Asian fund managers and something, and especially in Singapore that we are all talking about is the challenges in hiring, um, particularly in Singapore. I think over COVID, number one, you know, there's been a number of expatriates that have left you know Asia and went back to their country. Number two, I think you know more specific to Singapore, um, there's a lot of competition for talent. We are a hub here for fintech companies. So the likes of you know Meta, Google, um, that Asia headquarter is based in Singapore. There's also many Asian fintech setting up company here. We are also a hub for crypto firms, digital assets firms, um, hub and traditionally a hub for shipping and commodities trading company, as well as macro hedge funds or fund management company. Um, now Singapore is also trying to build itself into a hub for family offices in Asia. So with all of that, there's been an increased demand for talent all around. Um, and, it, and it's been tough for us, the, the asset management industry, to compete with so many different new companies coming into the region for, for talent. Yeah. So that's one key thing. Um, another thing that, you know, uh, tra key trends is also relating to talent, um, but more, broad, more specific to the hedge fund space. I think in terms of like I mentioned, we are seeing a new influx of companies, and this includes global hedge funds opening their headquarters in Singapore, particularly the multi-strats. The competition for PM talent here is, is at all-time high, I think. Um, as a result, we don't actually see many new emerging managers being launched. Uh, there are still some but nothing like five years ago or like seven years ago. I think the volume of new managers launching has dropped significantly in the past, you know, past, past few years with the influx of, you know, and, and the growth in capital of many multi, large multi-strat funds. Yeah. Lastly, I think one key topic is really the growth in family offices in Singapore. That has increased fivefold from 2017 to 2019, with 400 at the end of 2020 um, and about 700 or more now at, as of last count. So we are prob Singapore is probably the fifth wealthiest you know, country in the world 
with about over 270,000 millionaires and maybe 20 over billionaires, um, which is a lot considering our size. <laughs> and, you know, with MAS putting in requirements to set a minimum of, you know, 20 million AUM by the end of two years if you are setting up family office here, I think that has on reverse attracted even more family officers to set up shop here. Because that kind of credentialized them. I have a decent, certain amount of assets. That's why I, I could set up in Singapore. But the good thing from all of this is that the government has also stipulated that new family officers should invest 10% of their assets here in a Singapore-based company on the Singapore Stock Exchange or funds managed by a Singapore fund manager. I think this presents a lot of opportunities for fund managers based in Singapore. So even though we're taking a lot of new capital, this capital will, you know, will eventually, I think, find its home to Singapore-based managers. And this works and, and this is just a benefit for hedge fund managers, asset managers based here. Yeah, it's it's re refreshing to hear that, um, Ying. You know, you do have that incentive, further incentive that is to to continue to base your operations here in Singapore. Um, your your um, observation on talent, uh, it's not isolated to Singapore. I think that's part of a phenomenon that's taking place globally, the influence of of the multi manager, um, and and how that is starting to dominate really um, the alternatives landscape as regards particularly to talent and to retention of talent. Um, so I don't know whether that is something um, to have as some form of consolation, but it does. it is really recognition of the industry growing in influence, that is alternatives and hedge funds growing in influence, and the competition that the alternatives industry has um, you know, against, say, technology. Um, you know, where you are looking as an industry to attract the brightest talent you know, and the brightest talent will go, I guess, to the largest operations or where there is a bespoke um, fund or business, you know, that will look to retain uh, talent and, and to continue its operations in that fashion. Um, so very interesting. And again, like we said, something that, you know, we are seeing globally in terms of that picture on talent. The agenda yesterday at the AMA forum was wide-ranging. Uh, as I mentioned, we had panels on ESG. We talked about digital assets. We talked about private credit. Um, we had a panel discussion on investor trends. What were your key takeaways uh, from the conference? Did anything stand out that was of particular interest to you? There were many things, too many things that stand out that was interesting to me. Um, but I think I'll just highlight key ones that might be, you know, interesting to the listeners on this podcast. I think, you know, it was great that Ima had the opportunity to invite, uh, you know, the head of portfolio allocation in GIC to the conference. Um, GIC is one of the largest, you know, asset allocator in the region. And to hear him speak about his priorities and what he was looking at was interesting. Um, I also enjoyed your panel with, you know, other portfolio managers and asset allocators. Um, you know, I, I think the trend that asset allocators are looking at 
um, macro strategies going forward um, is very relevant to many of the hedge funds based here in Singapore because we are a hub for the macro hedge funds, fixed income hedge funds, um, corn hedge funds in the region. Um, and this is really because inflation will always, I mean, right now inflation seems like it will continue to persist and rates being a key tool that we use to control inflation um, you know, and not going down to zero anytime soon. It looks like there'll be continued volatility in rates and you, which will really present more macro opportunities. The other sessions that I really enjoyed was the one on private credit, particularly also because we are running a public strategy. So um, hearing the interest, the growing interest in the private credit space was very interesting. Um, and it seems like there's a very healthy private credit market over here in, in Singapore as well. And some of the return numbers that you know that was brought forth during the uh, during the conference itself was also seems very attractive, and this seems like a good risk return payout strategy. In terms of real actionable takeaways, I think uh, what was very interesting was the detail that we gone into on the private marketing fund rule that was launched in the U.S. Even though we are really far away from the U.S. Um, you know, many of the fund managers here are still exposed to U.S. rules and regulations because we either have U.S. investors or some of us are actually SEC um, CF or CFTC registered advisors as well. Um, so lots of work to do in terms of looking at our marketing material and our marketing strategy for the U.S. market. It's also interesting to hear you know, the crackdown on WhatsApp uh, or the various chat platform in the US, that's very topical for Asia managers. Even though it's unlikely to come, uh, even though this rule might not be imp implemented in Asia anytime soon, the truth is I think a lot of business, particularly in China, is conducted on the WeChat platform. <laughs> and it will be, you know, a huge paradigm shift and a huge effort to move away from conducting business on, on chat platform in, in Asia. Yeah. Um, lastly, one of the most interesting panel I was on was the one on, you know, chat GPT and the use of AI in, uh, you know, in, in the future. Uh, so what are your thoughts then? Uh, Ying, on, on how disruptive technology such as AI is likely to have in terms of impacting the alternative investment market? I, I think it will be, impact, it will be impactful. Um, but, you know, I think there's also a limit to its impact and I'll explain why. Um, during the panel itself, they mentioned that, you know, GS published a research piece that said that I think over 300 million jobs could be disrupted due to AI technology. And one of the jobs and probably the, the one right on the top was really a, being a lawyer or consultant. And that is true. Someone on the panel itself mentioned that, you know, if you didn't know this before, you could probably ask ChatGP to write your compliance policies for you and they could write something on that. I came back right away to check. Please write me a HR policy for a hedge fund. <laughs> um, and it created something. And I've also asked it to write me the, you know, what are the marketing rules for, reverse marketing rules for marketing in Hong Kong if you didn't have a license. 
any reverse solicitation rules. And it was able to come up with, with something. And that was and that was you know amazing in my opinion. Um, when in the past you had to go to the lawyers to get something, you know, official. But during the panel, they also talk about the fact that unlike you know a search engine like Google, which actually gives you the source to the information, ChatGPT actually comes up with the content itself. So there is a need to check against the content and make sure that it's accurate. So it might not be accurate um, and you cannot rely wholly on it. As a result, there is a cost to that. Like if it were to go wrong, what is the cost and who is going to be held reliable, uh, liable um, for the cost of such mistakes? So I think, I think that's key and, and brought up that, you know, you still need a human to, to check on chat GPT. And then here I am sitting here, I... The way I look at it is, in my work for the next maybe five, seven years, when you can actually still hire humans to check against the answers for chat GPT. But going forward, you know, 10, 15 years, if the humans are not doing the basic jobs, or like the simple jobs, you lose that technical expertise. <laughs> um, and then who is going to be the, you know, the residential specialist? To, to actually check ChatGPT and whether the answers produced by ChatGPT is correct. Yeah, so I think that's, that's an issue of using AI, you know, much, much further down in the future. Yeah, but for now, you know, I, I think it, it, it works as a good check against the humans. And probably they will not be 100% reliant because a long time ago when they said, you know, when the Excel came out, accountants are are going away because there's Excel now, but you know, apparently uh, the accountants are still here. We still need someone to really check and verify. And ultimately, I think people want other people to be accountable. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, the rise in the machines is, is definitely inevitable, but you know, we have got a situation where at least humankind will, will still be necessary to work alongside the machine. So we're not quite out of a job yet, Ying. Fascinating insights. And, and it was a real pleasure to meet you at the forum yesterday. And um, thanks for being such a great supporter of AMA. Thank you, Tom. Um, you know, I just want to add that I really appreciate the support that AMA has provided. Um, in the past, in my you know, previous life at on the sales side for 15 years, I had access to so much information, too much information even. And then moving on to the buy side and trying to build our business, um, you know, with a team of 15 people, I realized the flow of information has become, you know, much more reduced. A lot of work, a lot more work is required from me to, you know, look for like, to, to speak to my peers on best practices, understanding what's the top of mind for my industry. And Ima has done such a great job um, helping, I think, the buy side with that. I really enjoy all the content that's been rolled out, you know, um, regularly. Uh, thank you, Ying. That, 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 that's very appreciative. And um, we'll no doubt speak to you again. Thank you. Catch up again soon. The AMA Digital Assets Conference returns to New York on May 11th, 2023. The markets are different, but the mandate remains the same. Mastering the how of institutional investment in digital assets. We will be returning to our Midtown venue with fresh perspectives and content. Drawing on the work of the AMA dog, 
the global voice of the alternative investment management industry in the digital asset space. Practical breakouts on trading, compliance, and operational topics will run alongside plenary panels featuring leading global investment managers and allocators. Come join us at the AMAT Digital Assets Conference. Space is limited, so purchase your tickets today. Find us on the AMA website and follow the link to purchase tickets. To participate as a sponsor, please contact Sharon D'Agostino at sdagostino at ama.org, S-D-A-G-O-S-T-I-N-O at ama.org. If you are not an AMA member yet, this is the perfect time to join and be a part of this thoughtful discussion. That was Ying Ren on as Chief Operating Officer of Heritage Capital Management, and many thanks um, for her joining the long short today. Um, as promised, I'm joined by the co-head of APAC um, and my colleague, Michael Bugle. Michael, welcome to the long short. Thanks, Don. Good afternoon. And as always, great to be here. It's been a very productive few days here in Singapore, and well done to you and all the team for putting together another excellent conference. What are your key takeaways from the day? Thanks, Tom. It was a great team effort all around and a really good, exciting, frenetic afternoon. Um, the, the overall afternoon, I think that there are about five key messages I really would probably highlight. I think amid the frenetic macro and geopolitical conditions, investors are increasingly moving to alternative investments, including hedge funds and private credit to deliver that sort of eluding performance and more importantly, to protect their wealth. I think that was a really key takeaway that ran through most of the panels. But other things just to focus on, I think obviously responsible investment has entered into a new phase with fund managers adapting a more nuanced approach, if you like, to address the thorny issue of squaring their fiduciary duty to the investors with a desire to do good. And, you know, that's a very important key takeaway, I believe, and that's going to be an ongoing conversation, clearly. Sure. APAC, as you well know, is very much open for business. And we saw that very clearly yesterday afternoon. And what it tells you is that both Singapore and Hong Kong economies remain very closely intertwined, with both regions continuing to attract new firms and new talent across the alternative, alternative space. The, the other point to look at, which was touched upon, but it's mentioned all the time, but it's key just to, just to reiterate, and that is that the flow of fund formations in Singapore continues to increase. I think Ring just touched upon it, but we think we're now through 800 funds having registered with the VCC scheme since its establishment in 2020. So basically, the success is ongoing. Last but not least, everything, everywhere, all at once, AI will happen. When adopting AI, we think there's only going to be two types of AI. One is the trustworthy AI, and two, everything else. If you're shopping for solutions, look for signs of compliance, ethics, and I guess trustworthiness for sure, before you delve in and buy. And if you're building, do not put off trustworthiness till later. It really should start at the inception point. I think that more or less, Tom, gets what I actually got away from it, but maybe there's a lot more to go over in time. Yeah, that's, that, that's great, Michael. And, and, and certainly, um, you know, that's the view that's been reflected by, by Ying. 
earlier in this podcast. Um, one observation I would make is that uh, AIMA's events they've consistently provided a forum for participants across the industry to hear directly from regulators and policymakers. And, and yesterday's forum uh, had a keynote from an MAS representative. So how valuable is that opportunity for those in the audience? I think it's uh, incredibly, uh, inv- it's invaluable and valuable, if you like, to have access to the regulators. And we really, we really all need to be attuned to their current thinking. So luckily for our members, not just in Singapore, so locally and in the region, uh, and to be honest, AMA globally has fantastic access to regulators. We are very regular in touch, monthly, if not twice in a month, be it consultative work, be it emails, be it telephone. So we are very, very closely in touch with them, and we like to showcase them in all the events that we do. So our membership feels at least close and related to their current thinking. And for those of you who missed out on the event yesterday, the, the speech and that I refer to from uh, Mr. Lim, from Cheng Kai Lim, uh, is available on our website, as indeed it is made available on the MAS website. Um, so, Michael, Singapore appears to be a real magnet as well when it comes to industry disruption. We, we, we referenced this discussion on AI um, and indeed, Ying talked about that as being a highlight from her day yesterday. So whether it is ESG or whether it's interest in private credit or whether it's interest in other mega trends, you know, the Singaporeans really do tend to have their finger on the pulse. Would you agree? Oh, Singapore, as always, is very, very much in tune with global and local matters. And um, really, it's paramount that they are on top of everything that matters to their portfolio. Um, so, yeah, totally agree with you. Whether it's ESG, AI, digital, you know, it's all very, very relevant, and uh, it's it's also Amos Amos position to keep everyone on top of it as well. So yes, I totally agree with you. And it's Singapore and the event yesterday. It's just one of many events that Amos hosts across the APAC region. So, could you briefly describe then how Amos engages with you know the many stakeholders that we have across the alternatives investment industry, and perhaps signpost other events that you have coming up throughout the rest of this year for members and the wider public that they need to be aware of? Yeah, no, no problem. That'll be my pleasure. I mean, as we all know, and just to keep it sort of short and brief, AMA is very much a manager-driven association. So we have to make sure that the community, as in the the manager community, is very much up to date with current issues, be they tax regulation, administration, or even cybersecurity. And this has to be very clearly communicated via our events, uh, where as you all know who listen, we get subject matter experts to opine and update our members. And this is very, very key. key. Uh, we run currently anything between 8 to 12 webinars a month in the region, in the APEC region, which I think is, it keeps everyone pretty much on their toes. So the key message there is we try to keep our content very fresh and current. In terms of events to look out for, apart from the regular flow of webinars, the key standouts, as, as yesterday, are our forums. And now we've done with Singapore, the next big event is the Japan Forum, May the 31st in Tokyo, the Ritz-Carlton, full-day event. Uh, We anticipate a very good turnout again. All all APAC centres or cities seem to be thriving with with activity. So very much look forward to that, Tom. Well, that's great, Michael. And again, congratulations to you and, of course, to 
Kersheng um, and to Lee Kwang and to the team here in Singapore and um, the very best of luck for the rest of your events uh, this year and we look forward to hearing more from you um, over the course of this year. So thanks again for joining The Long Short. Thank you. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.